Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our central London service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. We are in a series at the moment called An Undivided Life. And in this series, we've been unpacking the call for followers of Jesus to devote every area of life to the Lordship of Jesus. Because not only do we believe that he created us, but we also believe that he died in order to reunite our whole life back to God. And the heart behind the series is simply this, that God loves and cares about every area of your life, not just some bits of it. He loves all of it. In fact, Jesus said that he came so that we might have life in all of its fullness. And that fullness of life gets gets to be experienced and lived out on a day-to-day basis. We get to experience that fullness of life daily on our journey of following Jesus, being loved by him, learning from him, and living like him in our world today. But of course, it comes as no surprise that living this life of fullness in a city like London comes with very many challenges, right? There are many things that seek to divide our time and our loyalties, our attention, our desires, There are many things that would seek to to occupy our minds. And the reason as a church that we would often speak into things like money or ambition or power or sex and relationships or technology is because our call to follow Jesus encompasses all of these areas and more. Areas that can either be devoted to him or, if we allow them, can divide us from him. And the issue of divided devotion is nothing new for the people of God. It's as ancient as the passage we're about to read in a second. But before I read it, just a small recap. Uh, A couple of times in this series, we've touched on very many uh, particular themes, such as idolatry. And idolatry is simply anything, even a good thing, that may take the ultimate place of God in our lives. And last week, Andy Tilsley preached on this uh, fantastic sermon. For those of you who might not have been here or have missed it, would like to catch up on it, you can find it on the podcast. Highly recommend you listen to that. Next week, Natalie will also be preaching on undivided worship, sort of highlighting some of the ways and being aware of some of the things that might divide our worship of God in our lives, that might hinder our devotion to him. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But today is about an undivided heart. And the passage we're going to be looking at is in Joshua, particularly chapter 24. Uh, I will read it for us. It's a bit of a long passage, so do saddle up. Hopefully you've had your coffee. We're going to hit the accelerate button, um, or the pedal, rather. And we'll get, we'll get through this. So Joshua chapter 24, the words will be on the screen, but if you've got your Bible as well, you can follow through. So Joshua 24. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. 
When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help. And he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Baal, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And this is the part that we'll zoom into today. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But... If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us, out, brought us and our parents out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Let me pray for us before we begin. Yeah, Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and our ears to receive what you have to say to us? Amen. Amen. Right, I want to begin, actually, by just highlighting two books that I recently read. And the reason I do this is not just to show off my reading list or to reassure you that I've done some reading in preparation for this talk. But the reason I do this is because if there's anything at any point that I say, and you're like, oh, man, Adnan, that was a great point. You can assume safely that it comes from either one of these two books. Hopefully, they'll be behind me on the slides. Um, but if there's anything that you also hear that uh, you're like, oh gosh, that was terrible. Um, it could or may be from these books or maybe more likely from me, but I'm not going to tell you or let you know that. But the first book is uh, by Kevin DeYoung. It's called Do Not Be True to Yourself. 
And the second is by Oz Guinness, which is called, uh, a book called The Call. And uh, both these books are great, engaging reads, but uh, the book by Day Young particularly touches on this chapter in Joshua. So if you'd like to unpack it more, read more about it, then feel free to do that. Um, but given that and saying that, let's dive into some context of what we read. So the book of Joshua is a story of God leading his people into the promised land after he had delivered them from the land of Egypt, from slavery. If you've ever read Joshua, you'll probably remember all the battles such as Jericho and Ai and all the kings that they defeated under the leadership of a man called Joshua. Now, who was Joshua? Well, Joshua was someone who took the mantle from Moses to lead the people on into the land of Canaan and allot to them all, to them all, the, uh, all the land according to the tribes of Israel. And throughout the book of Joshua, Chapter after chapter after chapter, we read of war and conquest, war and conquest, war and conquest, which is why by the time you get to the end of the book, by chapter 23, it's so striking that you read these words. It says, the years passed and the Lord had given the people of Israel rest from all their enemies. So by now, at this point, Israel was finally at rest from war. They had control and possession of much of the land of Canaan. The battles had been fought, enemies had been defeated, victory had been achieved. And so now Joshua is about to exit the scene. He's about to move on. But before he does, he calls everyone together. He calls all the leaders together to, uh, to essentially have his farewell party. Then by chapter 24, he assembles all the tribes and their leaders to renew their covenant with, with God which was originally established under Moses. And the covenant under Moses was simply this, that God would be their God and that they would worship him and obey his commands. So they're here now, after the exodus from Egypt, 40 years journeying the wilderness and after their conquest in Canaan. So the obvious question right now is, well, okay, what's next? What now? We've allotted the land to the tribes. We've entered the promised land. Our enemies have been defeated. We're free from slavery in Egypt. What now, Joshua? So as Joshua gets everyone together to recommit themselves to God, a part of this recommitment, he hones in on two things, which we're going to unpack this morning. The first thing is he calls them to remember. And secondly, he calls them to choose. So let's unpack these two things today. So Joshua begins by reminding the people of their history. More precisely, the story of God that they are a part, a part of. Now, just to, uh, just to clarify and highlight one thing, if you are a follower of Jesus here, this is also your story. You are a part of this narrative. This isn't something that's completely detached. We have been uh, grafted into the story by putting our faith in Jesus. Joshua is speaking on behalf of God, giving them this reminder. He says, remember your ancestors. They were worshiping idols, but then I called them to a new home and gave them descendants like the stars in the sky. I did that for you. Remember Moses and Aaron. You were slaves in Egypt. I sent the plagues and I parted the sea. I swallowed up the Egyptians to deliver you from their hands. Remember, before you entered the promised land, I destroyed the Amorites. I frustrated the plans of your enemies. While they wanted to curse you, 
I brought blessings instead. And remember that when you entered Canaan, I parted the river. I drove away the enemies that were waiting you on the other side of the bank. I gave you a land in which you did not build and did not plant, and I did this for you. Now, why is it that Joshua begins by reminding Israel of their story? Well, the Bible repeatedly calls us to remember. It calls the people of God to always remember. It's not just because our memories are bad. Like my memory is hopeless, like it's dreadful, right? Like when my wife, whenever she sends me to the grocery store, like the supermarket, I immediately forget what I came in for as soon as I enter the doors. Like, and and any, any of you that know me will know that I often forget names maybe 10 seconds after you've probably introduced yourself. So I apologize for that. My memory is terrible. But our call to remember isn't just because we are forgetful. It's not just because of our mental intelligence or capacity. So often when it comes to God, my inability to remember is not just a mental issue, it's ultimately it can be a moral issue. It can often be a direct expression of my sin. Now, for example, we live in a city and in a culture that often prides itself on being autonomous, independent, self-made. And when I indulge myself in these ways of thinking or in these tendencies, then I can get a sense that I'm in no need of God and it leads me to no sense of gratitude or dependence on him. And ultimately, it results in me forgetting all the stuff that he has done for me at the cross and all that he does for me on a day-to-day basis. But remembering is a practice that reunites my mind with God's purpose for my life. We can actively choose what we remember. It's a verb that gets used over 250 times in the Bible as a call to keep in mind or be mindful of God's work and his promises over us. And of course, the most powerful way we get to do this is by the practice of reading scripture, which I'll get back to later on in this talk. But another way we get to practice this as a church community is taking communion together. We get to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and his love for us. So Joshua wants a congregation to remember God's commitment to them and the commitment that they've made to God. But as Joshua is sharing these reminders, like you can almost get the sense that they're enjoying this. They're like, yeah, this is incredible, Joshua. Amen to that, brother. There's probably a few Pentecostal nods here and there, like hallelujah. Like God is God. He has given us victory, Joshua. Preach it. That's right. But what's interesting is Joshua doesn't just simply leave them to revel in their history. He then challenges them. He says, okay, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the river and serve the Lord. Yes, you should celebrate. This is an amazing victory. God is giving you deliverance and freedom, but it's not just enough to revel in the past. Joshua gets them to think, well, what about right now? What about now? If the Lord God did all this for you, then the obvious response should be, well, serve him alone. He saved you from slavery. He saved you from death. He saved you from the enemies that opposed you. He saved you from idolatry. God is the savior of your life. 
And now you need to make the active decision to choose him as the Lord of your life. You've been freed. You have entered the land. You've won the battles. Now don't forget why you won those battles and who gave you the freedom that you now enjoy. So after the reminder, he then presents them with a choice. And he effectively says, if one of these other gods are true, then by all means go serve those other gods. And if it seems undesirable or evil to you to serve the Lord, then don't do it. Now just to be clear, this doesn't mean that the one true living God of Israel and a pagan idol are somehow equally compelling or that they've equally demonstrated equal proof of power. There's a level of sarcasm in what Joshua is presenting here, if you read it. Like, he's just outlined to them everything that God has done for them, that they have seen with their own eyes and have experienced. And so he presents them with a choice that should seem obvious. He essentially says, if all this mighty work of God that you have witnessed and have benefited from, that has shown his love and his commitment to you, somehow now seems undesirable, then all the best finding that same salvation and commitment from one of these other gods. But you can't ride the fence on this one. You have to make a choice. Now, this isn't the first time that the people are given a choice. For instance, we see it when Moses gives them the law. He says, now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. And even after Joshua, 500 years after this moment, when the people of Israel have actually, in fact, completely forgotten the God of Israel, continually divided themselves with idolatry from the God of Israel that delivered them, the prophet Elijah comes on into the scene that you might remember, and he comes and represents them with a choice. And he says, how long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Again, Elijah uses sarcasm when presenting this choice, knowing that the God of Israel is the most obvious and compelling choice. But nonetheless, it's worth noting why this choice is so significant and important and what it reveals about God and how he calls us. You might remember the book I mentioned at the start by Os Guinness. Well, he writes this, and I think it, he, he presents this really well. He says, the Jews emphasize that the entire understanding of, of trust in the Bible is not a matter of blind submission. They point out that the Torah, which is the Old Testament, famously sets out 613 different commands. But there is no word in Hebrew for obedience. The closest equivalent is the word shema, to listen, to heed, to hearken, to pay attention and act accordingly. In other words, God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, but he is no dictator. Rather, a free God called his free people who are then free to listen actively, to deliberate within themselves, to pay attention, and then to decide how to respond. The covenant represented the rule of law, providing freedom and justice for all, and it was freely offered and freely chosen, with a full consent of the governed. Three times the people of Israel declared, we will do everything the Lord has said. And then he goes on to write about Jesus, that the call of Jesus allows neither refusal nor rivals, It costs us every allegiance that competes with him and every practice that contradicts his lordship. As always, the call is all. But, as always, the choice to have no choice is underscored as a choice. Jesus says to his disciples, 
If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and follow me, even to disciples who were already following him. Once more, he sets them free to choose or reject him. So, God gives the people a choice. Either follow him and serve him, or follow the other gods of the land and serve them. But what this means is that any genuine devotion to God relies not just purely on duty or fear, but more than that, it relies on love. It can only be done if we truly believe that God loves us and that he has the best in mind for us, even if it feels difficult in the moment. Now, just a very silly analogy here. Uh, My wife, Jess, couldn't be here this morning, but one way I occasionally win husband points with her is by buying her flowers. Uh, now, on a number of occasions, she has even given me slight hints that she would like a flower or two to make her happy. But, and I'll admit, um, I am not a flower person. Uh, I've not really uh, bought many flowers in life in general. But to be honest, before her, I didn't have anyone to buy flowers for, so it's a bit of a mute point. But the point is, Jess likes flowers, and it's one way that I can please and serve her. Now, imagine this. If one day I get Jess a a bunch of beautiful lilies and tulips, or maybe I want to splash out a bit more, so I buy a huge bouquet of roses, maybe even with a chocolate in it. Who knows? Valentine's Day is in a few days, guys, so you never know. Let's say I get this huge bouquet of roses, I present it to her, and she's like, ah, these are beautiful, Adnan. Thank you so much. Gives me a huge kiss and a big hug. And imagine in that moment, I simply, as a matter of, in a matter-of-fact way, say to her, please don't mention it, dear. It is simply my duty. <laughs> now, what happens in that moment? Well, probably Valentine's Day is over. <laughs> but in that moment, I think what happens is it completely defeats the purpose and the point of the flowers. You could probably say that Expressing my husband duty is a noble thing. Do we not honor those that we dutifully serve? Well, not really. Not if there's no heart behind it. Dutiful roses are a little bit of a contradiction in terms, right? Like if I'm not moved by affection, then the roses don't really honor her. They might actually belittle her. The flowers would simply be a covering of the fact that she didn't have the, the worth or, the, or, or the, the worth in my heart or the beauty in my eyes to spark any affection. If there's little honor if all I can muster up is some cold, calculated sense of marital duty. Or perhaps I take her out for a fancy meal somewhere and she's like, oh, Adnan, this is lovely. Why have you done this? Now, what would honor her most in that moment? Would it be a sense of duty? Or maybe if I said to her, I do this because nothing makes me happier than to be with you. Now that changes things, doesn't it? I'll give that one for free, guys. (laughs) Choosing to serve her because I delight in her as a person brings more honor than if I simply chose to do it out of duty. So we're given a choice to either love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as a result of that experience, true joy, Or we can choose not to and set our hearts on things that we're determined are more worthy and more significant. Joshua seems to have made up his mind. He says, 
He knows who he finds the most desirable person to follow as his God. He makes it clear about the direction that he's choosing. With some of the most well-known words in the Bible, you've probably heard this or read this a few times. It's often put on, I don't know, coffee mugs and plaques on people's walls. Natalie probably has it on her door. I don't know. Like, it's it's quite, quite, quite a popular verse. He says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So after Joshua reminds Israel of God's story as their savior and challenges them to choose him as their Lord, he then, they then give him their answer. Oh, and it seems to be a really good one, right? Seems to be a very good answer. They say, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Now they recognize that it was God who brought them out of Egypt and drove out all their enemies. And so they conclude, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Like, of course we're going to do this. We're not going to serve the other gods. But notice Joshua's response here. He doesn't just say, wow, wonderful. Praise God. See you in church next Sunday. In fact, he says, if you're not able to serve the Lord, he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. Gulp. I mean, why? Why does he deliver such a harsh rebuke. The Israelites seem to know the right answers, right? They, they seem to be able to summarize everything that Joshua had been saying to them. And you might even imagine them thinking and saying something like, Joshua, come on, man. Like, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Like, we know this stuff. Of course we're going to follow Yahweh. We're not going to serve the gods of the Egyptians that held us in captivity and slavery while they're putting their gods under the blankets or whatever. Like, why are you repeating this to us? We're Israelites, no? But Joshua knew that ever since they left Egypt and wandered the desert, they were not single-minded in their devotion to God. They were still carrying around with them the idols from Egypt and the lands around them. They were still holding on to the very things that symbolized their slavery and their oppression. So Joshua's aim wasn't to just simply get an obvious and trite answer. He wasn't going to accept a divided, double-minded obedience because he knew that's not what God was calling them to. But the people then redouble their commitment, right? They go, no, we will serve the Lord. Joshua then finally kind of relents and essentially says, all right then, you've said so yourselves. You're not going to keep your foot in two camps. You're not going to divide your loyalties and love. You're going to serve the Lord and the Lord alone. So let's see where this goes. Joshua's words would have felt very tough, right? Like it feels tough reading it right now. But it's worth noting that Joshua isn't speaking to uh, people outside of the community of faith. No, he's speaking very much to people on the inside. Like this wasn't an evangelism rally calling people to faith in Jesus. No, this was, this was to people who would consider themselves believers. Like people who, if they were alive today, they might be part of a church like this. And it's to these guys that he says, choose today whom you will serve. Now, if it was today, I imagine Joshua might sound a little bit more like this. You say you follow Jesus. You sometimes come to church, maybe every week. You own lots of Bibles, maybe in different translations. 
but do you serve the Lord alone? If your friends are God, then serve them. If your phone is God, serve it. If sports saved you from your sins, serve sports. If your work or your grades make your life worth living, then serve them. If entertainment and parties are what give your life purpose, then serve them. But if Jesus is God and he died for your sins and he's your deliverer, then let's stop trying to hedge our bets. If money, sex, or status are God, then follow them. But if Jesus is Lord, then follow him. But let's not be double-minded in thinking that we can serve both and hold on to both with equal loyalty and affection and love. Now, the decision to follow Jesus is going to be the most joyful and liberating decision that we will ever make, but it's also the most serious decision we ever make. In the rest of his message, Joshua's point is essentially this. If you want to make a serious commitment, then throw away your foreign gods. Your commitment needs to be seen, not just heard. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read Joshua, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm so encouraged by his courage and his faith. I look at his faith and the choice that he makes to follow God, even when everyone else seems doubtful, right? When everyone else looks at the land and says, there is no way we are going to conquer this land. He looks at it in faith and he says, no, God has promised us this land. We are going to take it because God is with us. He takes God at his word and he chooses to follow him even when the odds seem against him. But it can be easy to read stories like Joshua and forget that the choice of following God doesn't just happen in extraordinary circumstances. Actually, it mostly happens in the ordinary, day-to-day, mundane, thankless realities of life. The parts of the life that are often unseen. As I mentioned at the start, by the time that we land in Joshua 24, God has given Israel rest from all its enemies. The fighting had ceased and there was peace. There was a sense of normality. There was normalcy. Like you you could finally take a holiday. You could finally have leisure time. Put your feet up. Watch some Netflix if it existed. They could go shopping. Maybe take their kids to football practice. They could settle down in a nice, quiet life. Maybe plant a vineyard or two and sip some homemade wine and some cheese. But before they got too comfortable, Joshua repeats something at the very start of the book. At the very start of Joshua, there are multiple times when God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, as he leads them into battle and into the land. And towards the end of the book, we see this command resurface and reappear. Joshua says to the people, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not invoke the names of all these other gods and these idols or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Now, what does this highlight? Well, apparently, the biggest task for Israel wasn't just defeating the enemies in battle. It wasn't Jericho and seeing the walls tumble down and crushing and defeating the 31 kings in the land. Their biggest challenge, actually, was facing 
and surrendering their idolatry, conquering the areas that they made most significant and ultimate in their own hearts, the areas that were holding them back from undivided devotion to God. So this is why I think Joshua's very last command is very important. He says, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord. Israel, like us, needed to renew their commitment to God, even after being at rest. Perhaps, especially because they were at rest, the choice that they had to make is the same basic choice that you and I have to make on a daily basis. Will we follow Jesus? Will we trust him? Will we keep following him? So Joshua's call is a call for all of us to an undivided life. It's a call to yield our whole heart with all its divided loyalties. It's a choice to bring it to him because we know that he has the best for us and he desires the best for us. Before coming here this morning, I just had this overwhelming sense that just being reminded of Matthew 11 where Jesus calls everyone to come to him. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Like, you might be here this morning and you're feeling like, man, my heart is so confused right now. Like, I don't, I, I don't know how to surrender. I don't know how to bring it to him in devotion. Jesus says, come, come. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest. Whatever situation your heart is in right now, whether you feel anxious, doubtful, fearful, confused, if you're hurting, if you're burdened, Jesus says, come. Even if you feel like you're in a place of not surrendering, like bring that to God and seek his rest, seek his peace. He wants it for you. And so we're called to respond. We're called to respond by remembering and choosing. Remember. Remember who God is. Remember what he's done for you. Remember his love over you. Remember his love and his commitment. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Like one of the things that I, uh, I read recently from Romans is Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? What difficulty? What hardship? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Because of the love of Jesus, you and I are more than the conquerors over Canaan. Because of Jesus, he has had the ultimate victory over sin, over death. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Remember God's inseparable, undivided love for us in Jesus. And secondly, choose. 
choose to follow him today. Choose life, as Moses said. Choose also to remember. Remembering is a choice. Like Choose to remember who God is and what story you are a part of. A story of salvation and freedom, forgiveness, hope. That is a story we're part of. That is a story we live out. I wonder if the band would come back up. Remember and choose. Now, just three very quick practical points that I've personally found helpful in practicing these two things. And maybe this won't be for everyone, but maybe you just want to take some of these principles and it might be helpful for you to apply it in your own context and in your own situation. And these are, these are things that I've uh, simply put into my daily habits and practices most mornings since, um, for, well, for a few years now. And the first is this. Most mornings... Uh, I use something physical to remind me of God's spiritual presence in my day. And for me, this means I just simply light a candle each morning. I find this is just a helpful reminder of the light of God's presence in my day, whatever the day brings, just remembering that his presence is with me. And that whatever the day brings, his light, his presence will never be extinguished. It will never fade away. Secondly, I read and repeat scripture. For most of last year, I read Psalm 90 each day, and it's a prayer of Moses that reminds me of the eternal nature of God. It reminds me of the fragility of my humanity, but it also reminds me of my daily need for his wisdom and his love. And I just find that repetition helps. It helps it seep into my soul. Because the big issue I have is whenever I close any book, like I immediately forget the last thing I read. Lastly, I pray a simple liturgy to devote my day to God. It just helps me express my desire to dedicate my heart, soul, and body, and mind to him, and to love him more than anything that he has blessed me with in the day, and to love others as I love myself. And these are just some three simple principles that I found very helpful for my own daily journey of following Christ, of remembering his love, and choosing him in my day. And these are things you might find helpful for you as well. And as always, if and when you fail, like I do, then just keep going. It's okay. It's worth devoting even our failure to God. Maybe a big part of devoting our hearts right now is surrendering the idols of perfectionism and productivity. Like simply doing something because it's good for our souls, not because it's successful, not because it feels productive or perfect, but just doing it because he loves us. The art of devotion isn't about success. It's about embracing God's love for us and embracing his grace for our failures. So as we come to worship now, may we just bring a heart of devotion. Like whatever we're carrying, however good or bad we feel, let's just devote it to our King and our Lord. Why don't we stand? I'll pray for us will worship. In Psalm 86, there is a prayer that says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will give glory to your name forever. For great is your love toward me. 
You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Lord, we thank you for your undivided love toward us in Jesus. May we remember your love every single day. May it transform our hearts, wherever our hearts may be. And even when we feel like not surrendering, or we find it hard to surrender, may you help us with your Holy Spirit to choose to trust you and surrender even what we have with all our failure, doubt, and pain. We ask for your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come? Lord, without your Spirit, it is impossible to surrender. It is impossible to serve you wholeheartedly. Joshua was right. We cannot serve you in our own strength. We need your spirit, Lord. Fill us. Empower us for this journey every single day. Fill us with your love. Immerse us in your grace. Give us faith to choose your way this day and beyond. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.